the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Last Sunday evening at about 8.30 or so, Jason and I got a nice long text from Angela in which she was wondering and thinking about Jesus' suffering, God's impassibility, crucifixion, and the two natures of Christ, because that is how Angela rolls. I was sitting on the couch watching the latest episode of All Creatures Great and Small because that's how I roll, but I sent my own long text in response, also trying to make sense of the suffering of God. Jason weighed in the next morning with two excellent book recommendations because that's how he rolls, and I am sure they will clear things right up when I read them, which I will. All of which is to say that Peter may have been the first to struggle with the idea of a suffering Messiah, but he was by no means the last. Why does all this matter? What's at stake in these questions? Just before this passage, Jesus is walking to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asks, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, they say, or Elijah, or one of the prophets. Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers straight up, you are the Messiah. Peter gets it right, 100 points, well done, Peter. Three and a half verses later, however, Jesus yells at him, get behind me, Satan. So that did not last. (laughs) Poor Peter. 2,000 years of church teaching later, we are not astounded by the idea of a, a Messiah who suffers. We more or less take that for granted. But Peter's reaction is spot on. The great hope of the Jewish people at that time was freedom from the Roman Empire under whose rule they lived. And the disciples have seen Jesus' miracles. They followed him and responded to him, and they've seen enthusiastic crowds do the same. Surely Jesus is the one to challenge the Romans, set them free from their oppressors, and restore the kingdom of Israel in all its glory. Yes, Lord, we are here for the victory. The whole point of a Messiah for Peter and his faithful fellow Jews was triumph and vindication. All this confusing nonsense about suffering and death from the one he has just confessed as the Messiah must have seemed to Peter to be the work of Satan. No wonder he pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Jesus is nuts. He must be possessed to talk this way. And Peter is acting to save him from the assaults of the devil. Jesus rejects that line of thinking in no uncertain terms. Get behind me, Satan. The actual Messiah is not what Peter expected, and arguably not what we expect either. 
And although we now have a couple of millennia's worth of reckoning with Jesus' suffering and death, how to describe what's happening on the cross, how to say it right, is still very much a work in progress and a matter of dispute. Why and how does Jesus' death on the cross have anything at all to do with our salvation? Why and how are we called to take up our own crosses and follow him? There are so many wrong ways of answering that question, including that on the cross we see a victimized Jesus appeasing an angry God. That's not it. But I'm not going to get it all right either. But it is Lent. Good Friday is near. And this is how I make sense of what Jesus is telling us. Holy and gracious Father, we say in one of our Eucharistic prayers, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And this is fundamental because of what it tells us about God and about ourselves. God did not need to create creation. God wasn't lonely or incomplete. God made us and all of creation because God is love. God creates from an upwelling of love and overflowing generosity and grace. And, we continue, when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, when we had become so thoroughly and utterly ensnared in the great sticky web of sin that we could no longer get ourselves out and had instead become residents in the kingdom of evil and death, you, in your mercy, sent Jesus Christ your only and eternal son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. Sin, simply put, is a break in the relationship with God for which God created us in the first place. That break comes in lots of different forms. Our connection to God, to other humans, or any other part of creation fractures. And in Christ Jesus, God is acting to heal those fractures and bring us back to God for our sake. Living in reconciled peace with God and one another is the best possible thing for all of us, and that is what God wills. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world, we say. In Jesus, on the cross... God is refusing any gap that we would make between ourselves and God. Jesus, fully human, fully God, deliberately does not act in power or in self-defense because to do so would be to act against the very humans who are crucifying him, and God will not do that. God in Christ dies for his persecutors and acts to bring even them back to God's own self. In Christ In the crucifixion, God refuses any distance that we sinful humans put between ourselves and God. In his refusal to defend himself from us, and in his leaving off of power, God in Christ is affirming the ultimate belovedness of the other. Here is a weak and inadequate analogy. I love my grown children, and I am still learning that they are not me. They make different decisions about their lives than I might make for them if it were mine to choose. And if I am to truly love them, I have to love them as they are. This is part of what we mean when we say, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God. 
God in Christ chooses to triumph over death rather than over us. He refuses to diminish or demolish even the fractured humanity of his persecutors. He gave himself for us as we are because he loves us. This is a costly love. Jesus Christ loves us to death and then beyond. You've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. When we talk about love in a Christian context, we are talking about more than just feelings. Love, as Jesus talks about it, is a verb. To love God and neighbor, as Jesus commands us to do, means to do what we promise in our baptismal covenant, to seek and serve Christ in all persons, to strive for justice and peace among all people, and to respect the dignity of every human being. Upholding those promises requires more than just making sure that we ourselves are behaving correctly all on our own. It means recognizing, naming, and challenging systems that perpetuate injustice and oppression at a societal and even a global level. Racism isn't confined to how one person feels about or treats another. Violence isn't just a matter of what I do. Upholding the dignity of others has to do with ensuring chances for education and work, making sure people can feed and shelter their children, making space for others to become the people God intends for them to be, whether we understand those ways of being or not. And this is the work Jesus invites us into. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus does act to challenge the Romans, set Peter and his fellow Jews free from their oppressors, and restore the kingdom of Israel in all its glory, just not in the way Peter and his fellow disciples anticipated. God's power is made perfect in weakness, not in conquest. We are called to follow him into that costly, powerful, loving weakness for God's sake and for the sake of the world. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you.